Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, why do Canadians keep re-electing the people that impose these horrible COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates, plus perspective on residential schools? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. It is Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. Thanks for tuning in to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. I apologize in advance if I'm feeling a little bit hoarse. I was over the weekend actually at Talladega. I'm not even a huge NASCAR fan, but my father is, and my brother had a great idea some months ago that we should all go, the uh, three of us, and also my brother's father-in-law, to Talladega, for the Yellowwood 500 on the weekend, and we had a a fantastic time. I mean, you don't even need to be a NASCAR fan to take in the spectacle of it all, and I evidently got so immersed in it that I was like cheering and hooting to such a point that I don't entirely have my voice now, but I will try to uh, get my way through the show here. I hope it is not too grating for you to listen to. If so, I think on YouTube you can like turn on the live caption, so uh, maybe you'll have some luck with that. In any case, I do want to jump right back into the swing of things, though, and I don't do a lot of Quebec politics talk on this show for a couple of reasons. I think the general one is that it is its own animal, the politics of Quebec, and in a way that isn't always directly analogous to the politics or isn't really ever directly analogous to the politics outside of Quebec. This election, I was making a little bit more of an effort to stay apprised of what was happening because of the emergence of the Quebec Conservative Party. But as we saw, and and I mean, as we kind of feared, it didn't really make a difference. On the popular vote, the uh, Parti Conservateur de Quebec had uh, just under 13% of the vote, which is quite significant, but that amounts to zero seats. You take that and compare it, say, to the Parti Québécois, 14.6% of the vote, three seats or Quebec Solidaire, 15.4% with 11 seats. Uh, The Liberals even, 14.37%, and they got 21 seats. So distribution is everything in First Past the Post. So uh, all of these parties that weren't the CAC basically had a, a similar enough vote share, but for the Conservatives, it was too heavily centralized in a couple of key strongholds. But nevertheless, Eric Duhem is staying on board and will continue to lead the party. And it really is... Is, I mean, apart from the Liberals, which are liberal, the only party speaking up for English language rights in Quebec, and I think in general for a, a form of conservatism that isn't rooted in Quebec separatism. But I, I want to take a different look at this thing and, and talk about Francois Legault, who has 90 seats now under this 90 seats, 40% of the vote. This is a super majority. And if we go back just a year, a year and a bit, Francois Legault was the guy presiding over the strictest COVID regime in Canada. This was a guy who was threatening to tax the unvaccinated, to fine the unvaccinated, a guy who banned the unvaccinated from shopping in big box stores. Remember this photo that went around, I think it was of a Walmart, where the unvaccinated had to wait in this little vestibule like some dirty animal under quarantine while someone else went and got their stuff for them because they weren't allowed to buy non-essential things. That's what Francois Legault did. Or uh, people that were harassed and fined for walking outside their homes after, I think it was 8 p.m. at one point and then 10 p.m., but the guy who put in place a COVID curfew. 
So Quebec presides over the most restrictive COVID measures in North America and in some respects the world, and he gets a supermajority. You go back to the last Ontario election, less than a couple of months ago, very similar thing. Doug Ford, very strict COVID protocols in this country. Ontario had the vaccine passports. Ontario had the lockdowns. Ontario had the stay-at-home order. Ontario had, for a time, the uh, granting to police the right to question people who were out of their homes. And Doug Ford gets handily re-elected with another majority. Doug Ford elected after putting in COVID restrictions, elected after taking people's freedoms. Francois Legault, elected after taking people's freedoms. Justin Trudeau, and he's a bit of a different case, as we've talked about on the show. In the last federal election, just over one year ago, he was trying to push more restrictions. He was arguing for more restrictions. I want to ban the unvaccinated from the public service. I want to keep the unvaccinated off planes. I want to separate these dirty, racist, misogynist, unvaccinated types. And he wins. Not a majority, but he wins. So there's a question in all of this that must be asked. Do people like lockdowns? Do people like politicians who lock them down and take away their liberties? I don't think the answer is yes, but I also don't think the answer is no. I, I think that the sad reality is that this issue is not a deal breaker. And, and I'll give you two fundamental reasons why I think that is. The first is that when people feel they have no legitimate alternative their vote choice becomes this thing that they just do. So the federal election in 2021 is a great example of this. All five party leaders came together after the uh, one debate, I think it was actually before the French debate, and they recorded this PSA. We're all in this together. We've come so far in the fight against COVID, it's time to finish this pandemic for good. So get vaccinated. If you know someone who hasn't, talk to them. For our kids, for our communities, for our economy. It's how we get forward together. Vaccines are safe and effective for use. Vaccines are the best way for you to protect yourself, your family, and your community. So get vaccinated. Let's fight COVID-19 together. Pour vous protéger vous-même, pour protéger les plus fragiles d'entre nous, pour protéger l'ensemble de la population, le meilleur moyen connu demeure le vaccin. S'il vous plaît, soyez responsable, soyez solidaire, faites-vous vacciner. Merci. We all agree Getting vaccinated is the way forward. We're all in agreement this is not a partisan issue, so please get vaccinated. We're united, and it's time to get the shot. Vaccines save lives. They're how we're going to beat COVID, and it's time for everyone to do it. Get the shot. Get the shot. Now, you may think, what's the big deal? Five party leaders, um, a couple of them have now been deposed, but nevertheless, five party leaders come up and say everyone should get vaccinated. Well, it means that it didn't really look it didn't really look like there was anyone else speaking up for people that said, well, you know, maybe I, I'm okay with the vaccine, but I'm not okay with this coercion. I'm not okay with the mandates. I'm not okay with firing people. That Team Canada approach just completely made it look like there was no daylight between the Liberals and the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois and the Greens and the NDP, at least on the COVID file. Now, obviously, you fast forward now and the conservative position is much 
different and much better than it was back then. But at the time, only Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada, who, as we know, weren't in the debate and didn't have seats in Parliament and still don't have seats in Parliament, but only they were talking about this issue from what I would just broadly characterize as the libertarian perspective. So I think this is important. If you're a voter in Ontario, say, and you're saying, well, you know, I normally lean conservative, uh, but I really don't like those uh, lockdowns that Doug Ford did. Yeah, I can vote for the Ontario party, but they're not going to win a seat. I can vote for New Blue. They're not going to win a seat. And then I'm stuck with the Liberal or the NDP who would have locked me down just as much. And I talked to a lot of people like that. Now, many of them ended up staying home. But a lot of them just said, yeah, okay, fine. I guess I'll vote conservative because it doesn't really matter. There's just this resignation that this is the way politics is and there isn't really another option. And in Quebec, very similar. Now, obviously you throw the language divide in and other ideological fault lines in Quebec, but a lot of people that felt, yeah, well, that's it. we were going to get locked down no matter what. There really isn't a non-lockdown candidate. So we just accept and and unnecessarily settle because we don't believe, and in many cases, rightfully so, that there are other options, that there are better options. Now, I think better is always possible. It's not always easy, and it's not always apparent imminently, but better is always possible. I mean, in the last federal election, yeah, Aaron O'Toole, he was not really all that against mandates, but eventually the conservatives rise up and the leadership race that followed, even the most left-leaning in that race, Jean Charest, was not coming out and saying, yes, I support mandates. So I think there's something to be learned about this. And, and you can read up on this idea called the Overton window, this, this you know window that you look through that shows you essentially what the neutral resting position of a society is. And conservatives have allowed the Overton window to just move in such a way that it becomes not even at all connected to what they're selling and what they're offering. And when conservatives do this, they self-select out of the debate. They self-select out of the argument. And it means that when one of the most critical infringements of civil liberty, in fact, not one of the, but the whole host of infringements on civil liberty come up, the kind of stuff that we wouldn't have even anticipated was possible five years ago. You end up in a situation where you have no one that's in the fight, no one that wants to take up the fight and represent you. And I think this is the problem. I don't think that uh, everyone is all that thrilled with Francois Legault. I don't think everyone was all that thrilled with Doug Ford in Ontario. The criticism about both is larger and more pointed than I've ever seen it before, yet the two get re-elected with majorities. Justin Trudeau, same thing. How does he win re-election? A lot of voters stay home, and elections are not won and lost by persuasion. They're won and lost by turnout and getting out the vote. So when you stay home, you are having a tangible effect on the result, whether you like it or not, whether you want to or not. But the other part of this, and I I think this is so absolutely fundamental if you want to understand how electoral outcomes shake out the way they are. It's not about vote fraud. It's not even about being outmaneuvered. It's that a lot of people just so drastically misunderstand the calculations for a lot of voters. I'm a civil liberties voter. My freedom means a lot to me. Free speech in particular, personal freedom, this is the hill to die on for me. For a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, these aren't the ballot issues. 
The ballot issues are, they don't have the luxury of engaging in what, and I, again, I'm not saying it's an academic discussion because if you're someone who was denied the right to do certain things because of your vaccination status, that is very real. But the problem is that was at the time when the government had, you know, what, 90% of the country with two doses, the percentage of people marginalized by its proclamations was a small minority and not a particularly capital L liberal minority. So they didn't need that. They could win votes off the backs of these people because they didn't care about them. They weren't even human to the liberals, just as they weren't to the governments across this country at the provincial level. Even the holdouts, Saskatchewan, Alberta, eventually went down that road. So that's the whole thing. Elections in the last few years have had these coalitions in which certain groups are just pitted against other groups. And you look at the last few federal elections with uh, Andrew Scheer, for example, then Aaron O'Toole, and oh, social conservatives, gun owners, all of these people are told, yeah, you don't deserve to have a say. You don't deserve to have a voice. But no one as pronounced as the unvaccinated. No one has ended up in the crosshairs of the political debate as much as the unvaccinated have. And it's despicable, not only that you have politicians like Trudeau who ran campaigns against them, but that it worked and that they won. And then in Ontario and Quebec, the campaigns weren't against the unvaccinated, the campaigns weren't fought about COVID, but the people just moved on so quickly that they either forgot or didn't care. Because the only other alternative is that they liked it. The only other alternative is that, you know, I actually like the cut of that jib of that Doug Ford or of that Francois Legault. I like the restrictions. I didn't mind them. They were fine. You know, have at it. That, that's the only other alternative. And to be honest, I don't necessarily think that's as crazy as it is. And it's a project I'd like to dig into at some point, understanding why it is people are so afraid of liberty, why people want to take away their own rights and the rights of others around them which is what these restrictions necessarily do, rather than just leaving it to choice. One bizarre but amusing example of this comes in a human rights complaint filed, this is hilarious, by an Alberta doctor. So the federal government on September 30th dropped, or uh, I guess it was on October 1st, dropped the mask mandate for air travel. So there's nothing stopping anyone from wearing a mask on a Canadian airplane. You no longer have to. He has filed a human rights complaint about this. He says that it violates his human rights to not require masks. Nothing is stopping Dr. David Keegan from wearing a mask. Nothing is stopping him from wearing a mask. But he filed a complaint with the Human Rights Commission because he says that he has a cardiopulmonary condition and it harms him. It puts him in harm's way and therefore discriminates against him on the grounds of a disability to not force everyone else around him to wear a mask. The masks are so effective, yours doesn't work, but other people's do. But this is the whole point. So when the mask mandate dropped and all these just unhinged lunatics came out of the woodwork to say that, you know, we were all going to die. Emmett McFarlane, who's a a political science professor in uh, Waterloo, had said that it's homicidal, homicidal to drop mandates. So you've got people that are genuinely peddling this fiction that if you lift a mask mandate, you are just lining them all up and going boom, boom, boom. You're just like killing your citizens. You're executing them en masse. But you can't go up against that because there are going to be some people that believe that. You should go up against it. But if you are a politician that's trying to win over a cross-section, I feel there are more people like that than there are people like me that are like, I'm so done with this. 
And that's the real, and I, I don't even know how you measure that. Like, how do you go door to door and canvas the people that are too afraid of their own shadow to live because they're not even going to answer the door? They're just going to like pepper spray you through the screen and like run away. And then you've got people like me, that, you know, and, and a lot of other people that at varying points came around to this. There were people that were never on board with the lockdown. There are people that were never on board with it. And there are people that were completely for it until the third lockdown or until the vaccine passports or until the boosters and all of that stuff. So I think it's quite fascinating to me. We should welcome everyone who came along. It's the line I've said on the show is like, don't be mad when people come to the party late, just be happy they showed up at all. But if you look at the re-election of Legault, it is easy to be a little bit disenchanted with the state of affairs in this country. How did people re-elect a guy that threatened to find the unvaccinated, that put curfews in? And, and the questions, the critical questions, do people like that or do people not care? And I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. We got to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to be talking about residential schools here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. It's been a little over a year since the announcement of the discovery, uh, so it was framed anyway, of unmarked graves at the Kamloops Indian Residential School site, a uh, thankfully decommissioned residential school in Kamloops. And this followed a wave of other similar announcements. Some of them talked about ground-penetrating radar. And it became apparent, though, that a lot of what was being brought up, in fact, most of it was not new information. This was reviving a narrative and presenting things that mattered to communities, but were not how the media ran with them. And I, and I want to make very clear here, my issue has been the media which irresponsibly and reprehensibly reported on these things as though they were mass graves, children being murdered, when what actually happened was that a time in which public health was not what it was today, you had people that died at schools, Indigenous students, non-Indigenous students. Many of these cemeteries were shared. My colleague Candace Malcolm, I think, was one of the foremost uh, journalists. In fact, she was the foremost journalist in Canada at pushing back against this narrative. But everyone was so afraid. Everyone was so afraid to deal with this, afraid to take this story head on, which is why the Canadian flag was at half-mast for over five months, because we all just accepted as a country that we should be in a perpetual state of mourning until Justin Trudeau just flipped the switch at one point and said, no, 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 we can put the flag up at full mast again. The residential schools issue is a complicated one. And if you're expecting to find an apologist for them in me, you are not going to find that. I, I find that the fundamental ideal of the program, however it might have been believed and perceived at the time, is one that through the benefit of history and hindsight being 2020, I believe to be profoundly wrong. And I believe that terrible things happen there. But I also believe truth is paramount when we are talking about history and perspective and context are important, about understanding that the residential schools of 1900 were not the residential schools of 1960, about understanding the distinctions in various schools, within schools, and certainly from province to province. There was a piece in the C2C Journal written by Rodney Clifton, who actually lived at two residential schools earlier in his life as an educator, and he wrote about this in a piece called My Life in Two Indian Residential Schools. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba and a senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. I caught up with him about this last week. Uh, professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today. 
Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, excited about this. So as I was just mentioning in, in my preamble there, I find oftentimes this discussion, whether we're talking about the uh, supposed discovery of uh, bodies at uh, the sites of former residential schools or even discussions of the residential schools themselves, they tend to be, I think, very needlessly polarized. You've got uh, this one side that believes no one can criticize or express any skepticism to some of these stories or findings or proclamations by media. And then on the other hand, you have people that, that veer and, and are maligned and called deniers of everything. And I, I just want to first off ask you, do you find that there's always been this absence of nuance in this discussion in the time that you've been engaging in it? Absolutely not. <laughs> this is a relatively new phenomenon. I've been engaged in this debate, part of this debate. I published my first paper in 1972, long before some of the people that are involved in this debate were even born, and uh, look at the uh, integration of children, uh, Métis, Eskimo and Indian children, as we called them in those at those times, into Stringer Hall, where I had worked for a year uh, uh, with uh, supervising these children. At that time, people were more interested in what the facts of the case were, and there were a series of eth ethnographic studies done by uh, uh, PhD students in anthropology, uh, school at Mopas, which was about a uh, residential school in, in the Yukon Territory, and um, Kuwadl School and Village uh, that haven't been reported, and they were pretty factual, very factual in terms of what was going on in the schools. And there's a, a, a lot of literature that people haven't been referring to, and they don't know. They don't even know that it exists. So let's, con let, let's contextualize this for people. We go back to 1960s. What's your role in the residential schools? Uh, the first uh, job that I had was as an intern on the Blackfoot Reserve, uh, Siksika First Nation now, uh, and I was a student in the Faculty of Education at the University of Alberta in a program, a new program that was called Cross-Cultural Education. It was to train uh, young people to be teachers on Indian reserves at that time and Métis colonies, which there are separated colonies in, in, in Alberta for Métis colonies. And one of their requirements for the program was to do an internship. And I was assigned to the Blackfoot Reserve. I lived in the residential school from <clears throat> the beginning of May until uh, the third week in, week in August. And at that period of time, uh, there were classes in, this, in, in that school, as well as kids being bussed out to other schools. So I kept notes about what was going on. I had very good relationship with Blackfoot. In fact, my I met my wife there, and uh, we've been married for 54 years, and um, and and had a very good understanding of what was uh, going on at that period of time. As well, my wife was 10 years in in Old Sun School, and she used to call when people asked her when we were young. Uh, whether she went to residential school, she said no, that she went to a private Anglican school. Today, she doesn't even want to talk about it to anybody, N not positive or negative. She doesn't want to talk about it because of the change in the ethos towards saying anything positive about the school. She had teachers that saw her as her, as their child. They kept in contact until they were 100 years old and died. Christmas times when we went to Calgary, she would uh, phone these people. We'd go and have uh, tea with them, uh, and and it was it was a very warm relationship. You, you can't hear that anymore 
in 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 this um, in the dialogue that's going on. So you're right; it's polarized, and it's mm-hmm. a disaster. I want to read a line from a piece you wrote in the C2C Journal. No mainstream account of which I'm aware has yet challenged the underlying premise of residential schools as consistently awful, rife with disease, neglect, and abuse, a sinister system established to expunge indigenous language and culture and by forcibly separating Indian children from their unwilling parents, bring about their total assimilation into so-called white culture, unquote. Now, that's there's a lot packed into that, but I, I want to try to drill into a fair bit of it here, Professor. Are you saying that none of those things are true? Or are you saying that it's a more complicated picture? It's a more complicated situation. Obviously, there were children that were abused. That is absolutely uh, evident. And I think we will, we will not ha- deny that. Uh, but what uh, is missing is the positive things that are going on. It's like the complaints that we hear about the medical system. It's all about the negative things that are happening in the medical system, rather than a balance between the positive and the negative and giving equal time uh, to both of those. And, 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 And the legacy media is not interested in one side of that debate. I think they're letting Canadians down. I think Canadians are, are strong enough and, and mature enough to, to understand the subtleties of a situation. One concern that I've always had about the residential schools discussion is that there did seem to be a, a market shift in how residential schools, and I'd say how schools in general were in the late 19th century and how they were in, in the 1960s. And, and you know, when people talk about how recent some of the residential schools were, I, I have not heard of any of the things that we heard happening in the, you know, the 1900s, 1910s and 1920s happening in the, the 60s and 70s. So I'm wondering if you could talk from a historical perspective about the evolution, if there was a a conscious evolution within these schools. I think you're right. I think they were, they evolved in a similar sort of way that the public schools evolved. And that is from pretty uh, uh, top down teacher uh, said things and the children learned those, those things to a more uh, egalitarian and empathetic notion towards the culture of the children that you're teaching and you had to be somewhat empathetic to that that culture that was part of the arguments for the program on cross-cultural education that I was in at the University of Alberta and it was just started in, in 1965 so it wasn't uh, it w- didn't go back a long ways people started to get the idea that in order to be a good teacher you had to be able to empathize with the students and to stand in their place and see the world through their eyes before you could help them achieve the objectives that you and they would share. Now it's become quite polarized. You have to only have that perspective. And if you don't have that perspective, you can't teach them. Well, I've seen unbelievably good teachers for Aboriginal kids in Inuvik and other places uh, that had nothing in common with the culture They were very good uh, individuals, human beings that uh, taught very well. Do you deny that assimilation was the goal of that, or do you find that that in and of itself is not something that you would accept? I I have no problem with assimilation. Absolutely, it was assimilation. I think assimilation is a better word than integration. Uh, in the time that I was uh, in Inuvik and in the Blackfoot uh, Reserve in, in living in Old Sun, uh, there were all the, all the kids, 
outside of classrooms would speak their native languages and nobody did anything about it. Uh, uh, many of the white people in, in, in Inuvik that were working both in the uh, Roman Catholic residence as well as the Anglican resident had facial expressions and uh, used in Inuk took words uh, to to communicate with the, both the kids and with other other people, including the white people. So it become part of uh, the culture of that school is to use expressions like lifting your eyebrows if you want to say yes and scrunching up your nose if you wanted to say no. So people would use those kinds of things because they were the white people were a minority in 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 a a large uh, group of of. Um, kids that spoke as their native language in Nukatok. But the stories, and I mean, all Canadians have been hearing these now, going up to, and, and certainly since the Truth and Reconciliation Report, that they couldn't retain their own language, their hairstyles were changed, their names were changed. So where does that all come from if what you're saying is that, well, you know what, everyone could just use their own language outside the classroom and there was no issue there? Uh, where does it come from? It probably was enforced in certain schools. It probably was enforced by certain people to a greater degree than other people. So people are reading uh, the situation uh, from a specific uh, perspective and then generalizing. Now, I am doing the same sort of thing, but what I'm trying to say is that the subtleties between the schools and between the, the individuals that were uh, running the schools uh, may be quite large. And we don't know because we haven't got that evidence. The report doesn't report that evidence. If you look at the report itself, rather than just looking at the summary volume or the legacy volume, which are particularly biased, you will see a much more nuanced uh, set of facts than if you just read the summary volume and the legacy volume. So in and of itself, the report is not a fair representation, uh, the summary and the legacy volumes are not a fair representation of what the report actually says. And obviously uh, the commissioners since that time have gone off on a tangent in which um, uh, Murray Slinclair said in the report, they report that 4,201 children died in the schools. And it's true, some children died in the schools, but some children, died because of severe uh, infectious diseases like tuberculosis and smallpox and all kinds of things that affected other people, Aboriginal kids to a greater degree probably, um, but they affected other, other kids. And, 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 and Murray Sinclair has said, there's 15 to 25,000 missing kids or murdered kids uh, buried someplace. Like, where does he get that? If you go through the report, you don't find any evidence of that. And you don't see anything in the, the recommendations, the calls for action to get the RCMP to, un, to, to, to search schoolyards for missing children. Well, that, one of the I mean, one of the prevailing sentiments here, I mean, children being murdered, we hear that term used. Also, children being like just involuntarily pried from their families and placed in these schools never to be seen by their parents again. And you talk about in your experience, not knowing and, and your wife, who, as you mentioned, is someone you met uh, at, the, at this place, not knowing anyone who had that happen to them. Correct. 
there, there probably are uh, some cases in which children were taken from uh, their families, but certainly in my experience uh, in the mid 60s, uh, the, the parents signed forms to have their children come to certain schools or to uh, stay in residence and to go to other schools if they were bus like the Blackfoot children, uh, bus to other schools, they knew what they wanted. And at that time, they all wanted their kids to be educated in uh, the, the traditional educational system. They knew that in order to succeed, they knew that even to communicate with other Aboriginal people, and there's a number of people on the reserve that are mixed uh, Aboriginal uh, heritages, they have to communicate in English because they don't have a common Aboriginal language to communicate with. So whether they liked it or not, they needed uh, to be educated in English and understand um, English and French as languages of communication for, for our country, for other people. Now, now, if you look at the way people are using their Aboriginal names and, and you look at, the, at, at, at the, the accents on those names, it's impossible for people that are outside of that language to pronounce them properly. Why, why are they doing this? Yeah. What would you say? I mean, because I know you lived in the, the teacher's wing when you were staying there and, and you would have uh, talked to and, and known a number of the, the educators there. And I don't know if it's possible to generalize, but I'm curious what the prevailing attitude was towards uh, Indigenous people. Was it paternalistic? Was it fraternalistic? Was it just I'm the teacher, they're the students and and race didn't factor in? What what were your senses there? Uh, people people knew there was a differences in race and there was differences in culture. Uh, the people that had been teaching on the Blackfoot Reserve for a long period of time, for example, were unbelievable, uh, unbelievably empathetic towards the Blackfoot people. Uh, they uh, liked these kids. Uh, they thought their job was to prepare them for the world that was coming and to, uh, to get them prepared both uh, to be members of the Blackfoot um, community as well as uh, the non-Indigenous community outside so that they could fit into the Southern Alberta uh, culture outside. And, and now 50% of the people from the Black Re Blackfoot Reserve live off the reserve. If they didn't have that preparation, they would have a hard time um, integrating with other, with other people and taking jobs in Calgary or working in some of the small towns are working on uh, on farms that are that are in the in the in the area. Well, that's a certainly I think fascinating account that you've shared, and and I would encourage people to uh, first and foremost read your piece in I think the S uh, the C two C Journal, which uh, really elaborates on this. Uh, My life in two Indian residential schools, Professor Rodney Clifton. Good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That was my interview with Professor Rodney Clifton, and that does it for us for today here on The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll be back in a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Stay tuned. We'll talk to you then. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.